Welcome to State of the Arts Southern Illinois, a podcast by the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Our guest today is Vincent Segretario, one half of the dark synth pop duo Wingtips. Vincent and I discuss their music, how their backgrounds influence their music, and how their most recent album, Cutting Room Floor, came together. Vincent, thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. You start. You grew up here in Marion? Yeah. And um, you did a lot of musical theater right here at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was long before Wingtips ever existed. Mm-hmm. Um, so musical theater was obviously somewhat of an influence on you. Um, was that part of you knowing you wanted to become a performer, or did that happen at some other point? Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> after I spent a few years in college, I kind of realized that what I liked most about theater was performing. And um, I really loved to sing, too. But um, it wasn't necessarily the direction I wanted to go in theater. And so I had, a, I mean, I still have a huge passion for music. Obviously, it's what I do full time. Um, so I kind of they kind of merged organically and it's what I ended up doing and what I'm still doing. So it's what I do today. There's still a lot of theatrical element in it. And Hannah as well, my bandmate, we both were in theater school. It's where we met and um, we both have that kind that element of performance that we bring to what we do in our show. And uh, even in our songwriting too, there's a lot of, uh, theatricality um and a lot of uh, like almost like cinema elements too and how there's like an arc and uh <clears throat> yeah <laughs> so you ended up diving into music let's talk about where music started for you like what kind of music was in the house while you were growing up um my house wasn't really a music heavy house I, and i was, was kind of every man for himself uh, just figuring out what, what what spoke to you. My brother had his own musical interests and what he was into. I followed along for a bit um, and uh, definitely had some takeaway from obviously having a, a sibling that found music earlier than I did. But um, <clears throat> I'd say my earliest musical memories would have been around like first and second grade. And it's really interesting where the roots lie. Um, my parents um, were kind of bad parents uh, when they got me Grand Theft Auto Vice City as a was it first or second grade. Um, but I, I thought they were the best parents. <laughs> but um, I begged them to get it for me. And the soundtrack on that really changed me. Um, so if, if you, if for those of you that... Uh, don't know uh, the, sh- the game, the gameplay is you're driving around doing all sorts of um, bad things, but uh, there's always a radio playing in the car. And if you go to certain spots in the game, um, the, the music is playing. And since it takes place in Miami, uh, well, Vice City in the 1980s, it's like all new wave music and um, a lot of deep cuts too. Um, from other styles, but it's a lot of new wave music. So I got really into new wave, talking stuff like I'm listening to Flock of Seagulls and um, like Joe Jackson when I'm in second grade. <laughs> and um, I and in I'm that that's really like the earliest takeaway. So I listened to that stuff and got deeper into it as I grew older and. Um, Kind of fell off the music wagon as I got into theater as a kid, uh, but still listened to it. But um, um, definitely <laughs> they revisited in uh, my my conscience later on and then merged, I suppose. I, I think that is so intriguing that it, it all started from video game play. Mm-hmm. And so it really is kind of a, a cross-media influence of... The video game itself became your musical influence from the beginning. Yeah, and it's really interesting too. Um, well, it's, it's kind of funny because I meet a lot of uh, older people um, going out to 
clubs when I first started going out like to, to like the goth clubs or the new wave clubs or whatever. And I'm like, oh, wait, I can go to a nightclub and listen to this stuff or uh, meeting people at our shows now, even now. And they're like, how did you find out about this? Like, you're, you're how old? Like, no, come on. And I'm like, yeah, this is what I'm into. And, <laughs> and it all roots from video games bridging that generational gap. Yeah. And um, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> Well, and I, I've seen a lot of people reference the soundtrack from uh, Tony Hawk recently. That's another as one a too. Big musical influence. Yeah, and I wasn't even like a gamer kid, and I—I I mean, a lot of people that I know nowadays are still gamers and still play. I—I I still I wasn't even that. I just really loved that game. I love Tony Hawk's Pro Skater Two. Um, I remember there's one Tony Hawk where you can play as Kiss too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kiss getting in on that merchandising still. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and you can, and there's, there's a, like an area, like an area of the game where you can go to a Kiss concert and skate on stage. <laughs> yeah, so there's, it's, uh, that era of games really had a lot of, I feel like, responsibility for younger people finding out about new music, oh, old music. Yeah. And so it was, I know that you're a big fan of Kiss, um, just from knowing you, um, <laughs> When did that come into play, being a fan of KISS? Um, <clears throat> so when I was really young, um, this is the era where we still had a room in our house was just full of VHS tapes that nobody watched. They were just like stuffed away. But um, I was always just kind of doing my own thing around my house, and uh, I would just wander off and watch tapes. And um, there was this tape of, uh, what is it called? Kiss, Kiss Exposed is during the uh, Asylum era of Kiss, that, the era of, uh, one of the earliest eras of no makeup Kiss, whereas 80s hair metal culture is, is what they're all about at that point. And it's a mockumentary, and they basically, it's, it's like a day in the life of Kiss, like hanging around their mansion or whatever. And uh, they just go through all the eras of Kiss. They, just, they show bootleg tapes, and I just like, sat down and watched it one day and uh I, from there i was like this is my new favorite band <laughs> like they're just the most outrageous people you can ever imagine in d doing a mockumentary kind of almost like a spinal tap style and uh yeah that's it, it blew me away and and so that's that's where that started and uh um i've always been a kiss fan i always will be that <laughs> So your musical influences source from VHS tapes of a mockumentary yeah, <clears throat> and video games. Yeah, you had to find these things. You know, you can't just, when you're that little, you can't just go to a record store or buy CDs and figure out what you want. You don't, you don't know what to do. You just yeah. have to do what you have readily available to you at your fingertips. And if it's, if it's a video game that you get for Christmas and you accidentally find out about stuff or an old VHS tape, whatever, um, it's, it, it's, it's all accident. It was all like a, a complete accident for me. Um, yeah. Do you remember the first album that you actually purchased? Good question. Whether that's a CD or, or buying it on iTunes or, or whatever application, do you remember your first album and, and why was it that album? Um, the first album. So, I mean, I, I when I was, when I was a teenager, you know, iTunes had, was coming out and, uh, but I, I never, I never saw that as buying like an album or buying music. It's I, I've, my memory of buying a record was, is, is what I would say is like buying my first rec, my first record. And I think that would have been disintegration, the cure. Nice. That, nice. That's, that's the first one I remember. I'm like, I am buying a record. And I'm gonna take it home and take it out and listen to it. I I will say just that's the first one that you know because if you buy a, buy a song for 99 cents on uh, iTunes now Apple Music it's it doesn't really have the same value. Yeah, it, you know there wasn't anything physical to to latch onto. With no, it. Um, I remember my first the first cassette tape that I remember buying was Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, that's a good start. Um, and then. And then the first CD is not a good start. It was Achy Breaky Heart. <laughs> good old Billy Ray Cyrus. Oh, um, uh, yeah. But that was my first CD that I ever bought. And I, you know, that's, 
Um, and while he's regained some popularity due to being latching on to some... You're talking some, Weird Al or Billy Ray? Billy Ray. Oh. Weird Al has obviously never really lost popularity. And with the new documentary uh, docudrama about him yeah. uh, with Daniel Radcliffe coming out, um, he's obviously going to be right there at the forefront again. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah he's, he's one of those artists that... N- the general public doesn't take seriously, but like people that are really into music and are like revered, hugely influential. Oh yeah, and he's he's an incredible musician on top mm-hmm. of it all. Um, you know, and the root of his of his musicianship started with polka, yeah, and the accordion l- far before he became the weird Al Yankovic that everybody knows. Yeah. Um, and I, I believe his father was also influential within the polka scene um, prior. So he came from a family where he was vested in polka. So interesting. Yeah. But, UHF is one of my favorite movies. Oh, my goodness. Um, I remember renting the VHS. Yeah. Um, what was it? Uh, even worse? The, mm-hmm. the bad album? That's, <laughs> uh, that's so good. Oh. Uh, so... I absolutely love that your musical influences from the beginning came from varied sources that weren't just music playing in your house. It was it was found music either through a VHS tape or through the video games that you were playing um, that really had the influence on you. Um, from a musical, from a, a the standpoint of your music, do you think any musical theater had any? any play within your musical influences? Yeah, it's not something I really thought about too much, but definitely um, I think it really comes into play uh, in vocals. So, I mean, uh, uh, Hannah and I were both music theater performers, and so we sang a lot, and that's how when we first started singing, both of us was in that style. And then later on when we when we were revisiting um stuff that we love from the past music. Um, and you know, we start adopting some of those vocal characteristics. They were just meshed, you know? So there's definitely a music theater element in both of our singing styles. I would say that we have today. Um, I, uh, haven't really dissected it. Like, like, Oh yeah, this song is like Sondheim or this one is, uh, totally uh like sunset boulevard or some whatever you know name your musical or whatever but i it's definitely there um and i know it's there because the the feeling that you know, when whenever you're performing on stage for a, in a show um and you're trying to and you're you're trying to tell a story through the eyes of someone else that's a lot of what my style is not a lot of the songs that I've written personally are directly from exper- direct experience, but um, from other people's standpoint and um, uh, just things that happen to people. A lot of them, uh, ha- a lot of the experience that I sing about have happened to me, um, but a lot of it is is just telling a story, you know. And so it's it it's it's inherently there. So. You've talked about your songs a lot. When did you start songwriting? Um, I started writing solo music when I turned 17. Um, I had a, a laptop, and um, I was really into like progressive house and progressive trance music at that time, and I really wanted to know the ins and outs of that, and um, it being obviously all electronic music and being... Uh, largely produced on computers. I'm like, well, I can give it a try. So I started doing it that way. But then I started really getting into almost like 8-bit chiptune sounds. And that added to like the new wave thing. It just is it was like uh, <laughs> like Thompson Twins Mario Kart uh, tonality. And so I was just like taking that and running with it. And um, then I get to college and I'm still kind of doing that uh, same trajectory, but then there's like an ambient 
thing that ambient phase that comes in and um, kind of, I think, started me on like a like kind of an atmospheric route that is still present in our music today. Um, but it also started from like writing music on computers when I was younger and um, just experimenting that with that and um, while also being in music theater school. And uh, <laughs> uh, so I was when I had time, I was just paying actually as much attention as I could to the mute, the writing music. Um, yeah, that's why I only lasted two years in school. I'm like, I, I can't, I gotta, I gotta do music. <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is where my, where my, my body and soul lies. Well, and once you find your passion and, and find how you want to really pursue that passion, it's really hard to turn that off. Yeah. Um, so for your process for songwriting, where do you start at this point? It varies really. Um, <clears throat> but the most, um, the most common, um, the, 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 the thing, the, the way that we do it most is we'll start with something instrumental. We'll create a vibe. We'll create the, the bones and body of a song. And then from there, um, however it ends up will influence what goes in lyrically. But sometimes we have started from lyrics and um, sometimes it, 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 it's just a mix of the two where we know that like, okay, the hook of this song is going to sound vocally like this, but we are working with these bones of this song, like this drum and this bass and these keyboards, etc. So it's, it, it's, it's, always, it's all really, really Frankenstein-y. So, um, but I would say, I would say most commonly we start with an entire instrumental, uh, like a completed track and we'll just sing over it. And your the songwriting for wingtips is really a group effort between you and Hannah. Yes. Um, so the two of you, even whenever you say, let's say you start with a, an instrumental track, how do you get to that instrumental track? Um, do you, do, do you come into it with something in your head with uh, a melody or a hook that's already in your head or how do you get to that point in the creation of that instrumental soundtrack that your songs build off of? Yeah. So it's, uh, it, it, it comes from a lot of different angles. Sometimes we'll start with, um, you know, I'm really, I'm really rhythmically, um, inclined when it comes to songwriting. So a lot of the times I'll start with drums and bass, programming them, and um, I uh, just go from there. And then I'll add keyboards, synths, strings, whatever, uh, additional percussive sounds on that. I build it from there. But right now in the demoing that we're doing, like I'm starting with a lot of just keyboard parts, like some stuff that's really uh, melodically inclined. But um, yeah, it, it's it's... It's widely variant. So do you think that's a, a progression of your songwriting that you are shifting from rhythmic bass to now melody driving you? I have no idea. <laughs> um, it's just been so all over the place for a long time that it's just, it's just it, whatever, whatever comes out first. It's just whatever the makes that you're in at the moment. Because also a lot of the times if I, I, we start the wrong way. There's just a lot of stuff that we just scrap. If I start with, you know, if, oh, I'm, I should start with a drum track or a bass track or a synth track, it just doesn't work. We just have to scrap it, and you just never know what's gonna work. You, it's it it's really it really just about like what we're feeling and uh, what direction. And you asked if 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 we have something in our head, that is something that happens a lot, where we um, <clears throat> I'm hearing something and. A lot of the times what I'm hearing does, is not what comes out and just something completely different comes out. It's really all over the place. And uh, <laughs> I'm really intrigued by it. You're saying you know, you'll start with a drum, drum track and, and build that in and then you'll, you'll scrap it. Are you scrapping everything or are you scrapping what you started with and keeping things that have built out of it and then building off of that? A lot of the times we just scrap it, but we don't delete it. They're just living in some file folder somewhere. We're just like, uh, just, just, let's, let's move on from this. 
uh, let's start something else. And then what, what, what's, what's also good. And I don't know if this is something that could be deliberate, uh, from, for future production is, uh, <laughs> a lot of the times once we scrap something and we're like, let's just start something new. And as soon as we start something new, just quickly, it just com- it just comes together. Sometimes it's just like a warm up, like finding something that doesn't work or working really hard at something that just, just get frustrated and you scrap it. That's like a mental warm up. And then a song comes out in like a day. I know a lot of writers and artists that both have essentially practice modes or warm up modes before they really get into what they're writing. Mm. To where like they'll start their day with a prompt and write something that it's never going to see the light of day for anyone, mm-hmm. but they're starting it with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the same with with physical artists with painting, they they have an entire canvas that's just a palette of them putting colors together, and and they'll build upon that, and it'll just be basically a test canvas for a long time before it actually becomes anything. It's probably that same phenomenon experiencing. <laughs> Yeah, and you're you're building up to your you're starting your creative process, and you're, you know, essentially getting the gears moving, mm-hmm. and then finally getting into it. Yeah, and a lot of the times too, you know, it, keeping what we scrap, I would say, is, for lack of a better description, um, we'd like to revisit some of the things we scrap. If stuff that's just a drum and a bass, like uh, like I remember our song "Minimalistic," the first track on the new record is, had been sitting as a scrapped piece for like three or four years in on a computer. And it's like, let's just look back through this and see if we have any substance. Cause it's just, it is something that's already there that has some bones. And if it works, you can just quickly build up on it. And I just remember thinking like the driving base of it would be good for like a, like a chorus and it, and uh, so yeah, we used that piece of scrap, a um, little bit of scrap metal there. It's not metal. Well, and, and there's a, it's it's that's a great perspective that essentially what you're creating and the creativity that you put out there is never really lost because you're able to harvest something from it down the line because you're keeping it all on a file. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you forget about it too, and you forget about the anguish of being like, oh, this isn't going anywhere. And you just revisit because a lot of the stuff that we've scrapped before, I, just, I don't even remember doing it. It's like, whoa, I this is completely gone from my memory. It's like, but we can do this with it. Well, and it's it's also amazing how something that wasn't working for you at a different time, based on your present situation and your present mentality, mm-hmm. can come back in a completely different way and hit you in a completely different way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you know our artistic personalities are change all the time. And, um, I think you're right when, it, when, when you revisit something and you're just, I mean, if nothing else, it's a completely different person artistically than you were before. And you can see how something else can apply better. Well, and I think that also speaks to the progression of, of the wingtips albums. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the sound is, it's still wingtips. But each album is very has a very distinct nature to it, mm-hmm. um, and especially looking at your most recent album, Cutting Room Floor, um, it really it really has a, a very fresh sound to it compared, you know, whenever you whenever it whenever you look at it against your other albums, that it's something new. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the feel of your music is continually growing and, and building. Um, and so I, I really find it, I really look forward to every new album that you, that mm-hmm. you that you release because I'm, I'm, I'm really anxious to, to hear and feel where you're going yeah. and, and where you're moving. Um, so let's talk about, let's talk about your current album, your newest album, mm-hmm. um, Whenever you were putting that album together, was there any specific goal um, where you guys wanted the music to go? You know, I think it all just came together in the end. Um, and 
a lot of it was Frankensteining it. You know, it's it's pulling like we were talking about just a minute ago about pulling um, different elements from the past. If we had scrap or if we had an old song that we put out in a demo or whatever, we were assembling it that way. But we were refining everything. Um, and by the way, the, the most of the material is brand new. There's only a couple things that we brought back. And um, but it was about kind of refining everything to make it as cohesive as it can be. Um, but also it's for, for us, I think whenever we think about the record, it's, and it's the same for the first record exposure therapy. Every song comes from a different area of our heads where it just almost feels like, dang, th like this, this album is so like, <laughs> everything is just so different. It's so disjointed, but then, you know, from like an outside perspective, it seems cohesive, but, um, we for this time we were just consciously trying to see how we could make this arc of the album as cohesive as possible and um make it just kind of like a total artwork instead of just a collection of songs well and that's something that you know back in in the 70s and 80s people really focused on the album as a whole mm -hmm. whereas so much of the music industry these days is singles driven yeah and in turn you get a lot of disjointed albums to where you're you're jumping around all the time as you listen through somebody's album i have noticed that too and i think that the albums a lot a lot of the albums these days are really so long too they'll just like put 17 songs in an album just like that's insane and um I mean, and yeah, and I grew up on a lot of the albums from the 80s that are like 10 songs, 12 songs max. Yeah. And you can sit down and listen to them and so in one one go. And so and, and and back then, we were limited by not we, but the industry was limited by you know, in the 80s, your focus was cassette tapes. Mhm. Mm and so whatever was on the A and B side, that was your album. Whatever right. you could fit on there. And then you got into uh, CDs. And you were limited as to what you could put on there. Right. And now that everything's digital, mm -hmm. people are throwing out 17 albums, which yeah. that would have been a, a, a two-disc album. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know? Uh, or double vinyl. Or double vinyl. Whereas now it's, we can release whatever we want to because it's all digital. Yeah, and I think it, it makes sense these days for the goal to just have as much material on an album just so, you know, for you have enough... Uh, enough ammo for playlisting, you know, if there's more songs off this record. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> it's just more stuff to get passed around onto streaming services and playlisting and, uh, the old algorithm, you know? Well, I, I really love that you're, you're taking the time and the care to really craft an arc of an album in the same way that, that it used to be whenever, whenever, you know, in a time where the liner notes were important and, and you'd, You'd put the album in and you'd start reading. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's always really important to us because um, that's that's what influenced us to do what we do today is what we grew up with and um, being able to just dive into the artwork as 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 an experience, you know. It, like pulling out the lighter notes and reading what they're saying and learning the songs. Um, I just feel like there's less importance on that today, but um, yeah, it's always been really important to us, but maybe next time we'll just write 17 songs and it's like put it on an album and it's like 15 songs of filler, and two singles. Maybe we'll just, maybe we'll just try that. It seems to be working. The, <laughs> uh, the other phenomenon that you guys that I feel like you guys are intentional about is with your music videos. Mm. Um, within an album, the music videos that you guys release within an album seem to all be connected in one way or another, whether it's thematically or whether it's cinematically or through the cinematography. There seems to be a through point mm -hmm. that, that, that make them all feel as part of one story. Mm. Is that intentional as well to to really convey the the arc of the album that you guys approach? So um, <clears throat> I feel like our approach to music videos has been to really give an aesthetic 
with a loose story, you know, we just kind of like want to go for this vibe, you know, because our music is 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 very vibe is vibe driven. And so I think it's important, like we've always just been really focused on the imagery and like what's what's happening as opposed to telling a story, you know. Uh, and so that's probably where the crossover uh, one might see is happening, um, where this whether there's consistent or seemingly consistent elements between the videos. Um, I think, you know, we tend to go for a certain level of cinematography and um, certainly it's not all like we, our videos are not like some monolithic structure where it's just like we, it all, they all look the same. But um, I think we just really, as in our music, we're really Im- uh, inclined on making or, or creating that same atmosphere, but visually, it doesn't always have to be the same, but I think it really speaks to the music, you know, and it varies. Well, and that, that explains why or how that there, there seems to be a through point. Cause you're, you're focused on a through point and a feel throughout your album mm-hmm. and an arc throughout your album. And whenever that transfers over, um, you know, music as far as the vibe and the way that the video feels from the vibe of the music, mm-hmm. that that there would be a through point there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think, and I think that you know we have a certain level of production that we we have that we standardize for ourselves, you know, and sometimes it just does. Sometimes it doesn't meet it, and uh, we just don't we don't put some stuff out. But um, like certainly everything that's out there right now is what we wanted and um, what we wanted to convey. And um, yeah. So you just came off of a 31, 32 stop tour, your, your summer oh, tour. Yeah. Um, one, congratulations for finishing that up. And you, <laughs> you need to take some time and rest for sure. Because um, I, I can't imagine a tour life where you're putting yourself out there and exposing yourself emotionally every night with through your music. Um, but talk to us about what that experience is like and, and, and how it works for you from tour stop to tour stop, trying to create a consistent show. You know, it's, I, it's, <clears throat> really happy to be going here because um, we've talked a lot about the music and the songwriting, but really, we really see ourselves as a live band. Um, Obviously we come from a performance background and so really where it's at for us is our live show. A lot of people like we've talked to are like, you know, I listened to your music, but, and it was like, okay. And it's like, it's, it's good. And, uh, but as soon as I saw your live show, it's, it was just like a completely different experience. And I think that's what we're really good at is as I, where I think we're best at it as artists is creating a live experience. And I'm, I'm really intrigued hearing, hearing you talk about the creation of your music um, and how you're building everything um, in the computer and digitally for your songs. How do you then figure out what, how you're going to then perform all of this in a live setting. Well, it makes it easy um, that we're a two piece because there's a lot of playback. <laughs> and, uh, but um, we take out every element that we can as two um, individuals can feasibly perform within a song, within a set. So Hannah's uh, doing electronic drums and um, synth part singing where we sing live and uh, I play guitar on almost every song. And, um, so it, it's, it's a lot easier than it might seem when described. Um, but, uh, it doesn't seem easy <laughs> uh, from, from listening to all of the layers and depth within your, within your songs, it doesn't seem easy to take that approach and say, okay, I'll do synth here, but I'll do drums here. And how you pick out what's important to do live 
yeah to to best impact your live show well also one of the biggest criticisms we got um uh, coming up as a live band was you guys need a drummer you need a, it's all these old heads but you need a drummer this is a why, why do you have a drummer I'm like well we'll give you a drummer her name is hannah <laughs> so um we got some electronic drums and so a lot of the um a lot of the stuff that we pull uh, on that half of the stage is percussive. And I really think it's brought a new element to the to thing. I mean, I've just played guitar forever. Um, and so it's easy for me to do that. Um, and so I just stick with, with that. Um, but Hannah's doing like the, the synth, the drums, the, the sequencing and the, uh, the the handling the light show at the same time, and so she's just really doing that. That show is mainly her, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's taken it's taken us a while to get where we're at, but it's an evolutionary process. Um, and we're just thinking about like, damn, like what do we what do we do next? You know, like how do we how do we outdo ourselves? It's a bit overwhelming. Thought. Well, another question is when do you decide? Like when you're building the original tracks, do you already have it in mind what what layers to the tracks you're gonna do live and what layers you're gonna to to go through playback? Or is that something that once you're done with your album and you start to move into your live show that you mm-hmm. figured it out at that point? Where does that happen? Um, I'd say there's a pretty smooth crossover. Um so I I mean when I'm writing a song or when I'm uh so I do a lot of the engineering on our tracks too. And uh, a lot of the, I'm really hands on with the production. So whenever I'm just obviously like listening to a song over and over again, and I start to think about the live element, and I just like, you know, like I'm really excited to play this song live, and I just start thinking about what it's going to look like, and uh, what parts of the song that I want, like I want to be performed, you know. Um, and also for our light, our live show, we create new elements. So it's not just everything you hear on the record. But whenever you hear a song of ours live, it sound it oftentimes will sound diff, a little bit different. There's just something added, and um, that is also exciting too because I really am a fan of going to see a band that it their song you know it, but it sounds a little bit different. There's a live version, but some bands just go and literally play a track and lip sync over it and it's miserable (laughs) so but i i'm it's really important for you know the resources that we have and the capabilities that we have to give as much of a live show as we can um yeah so i'm think i'm we're both thinking about what we want to do live somewhat in advance and um and so it's somewhat of a a natural and organic step whenever you go into live because it's already been processing throughout yeah it's pretty smooth sailing all, most of the time because um, we know how to do it and we know what it's going to take sometimes we try things and it doesn't work but you know we'll just go to something that's that does work for performing live so um yeah so you guys th- was this your first like full big big tour post pandemic no, we did about 40 dates last September on the West Coast and Midwest and South too. Uh and also we we did the whole we did the whole US. Um uh with a with a band Twin Tribes um as a support for them and uh that was our first big t- it was our first tour out after the pandemic and it was a big one and it was um it was right after everything was really just started to reopen and there's still a lot of uncertainty. We didn't know what, what was going to happen. And, um, at that time people were just crazy about going to shows. Everything's reopened and, and they were just going to whatever. And so all the shows had like huge turnouts. And so from going to nothing to, uh, all what felt like everything was crazy. Um, and so that was last September, Last few dates, or somewhere in the middle, uh, the, some dates got canceled because of COVID. Um, but then we carried on later and did our own tour on the East Coast. And um, yeah, and fast forward less than a year later, we're already back on the road doing basically the same run. 
That's awesome. <laughs> and so you've played all over the U.S. Um, you ventured into Canada, Canada for a couple of dates as well. Um, yeah. So we played Toronto. It was like the very first date of this tour. Um, I don't think we played any Canada dates on the last tour. Um, we'll just go ahead and say no, we didn't. And then you had a European tour scheduled, um, and that was right when the Omicron variant really started to surge and that got canceled for you. Yeah. Um, well, another, well, the big issue, um, for that one was, uh, visa issues because nowadays it's visa issues are really, really tough and, um, and really common. And, um, and the the nature of getting a visa as an artist, it's it's a mess. Oh, I, I someone described to me recently just the process, like in one sitting, and it was <laughs> what it what it takes to get a visa, and it's just like I could never imagine. And so sometimes those things don't pan out, and you don't find out about it until like last minute, or you know, um, there's so much uncertainty around it that you can't rely on it's too risky. Uh, yeah. A lot of tours get canceled, um, overseas because of that. And, um, so are you guys going to try again? Yeah. Um, so it, it, it was, uh, the tour, the band we were going to go out with had visa issues. It, I, I don't think we, the, the level of touring that we we're going to do is we don't need, uh, that kind of clearance. Um, or at least I don't think we do. Let's hope that we're all good. Um, so it's it's it seems to be pretty pretty good, like pretty good pretty good chance. But uh, that'll be later next year. Um, but that's being worked on right now. Um, and um, we have a couple festivals that we'll be playing in Europe. Hopefully, regardless of whether a, a full tour comes into swing, but I believe it will. Good, good. Well. Um have you started working on another album yet? Um, very, very minimal dabbling. Um, we're trying to, th we, we, we're, every time we talk about like what direction we wanted to go in, we're like, yeah, we should do this for the next record or we should do this or that. The conversation is just completely different every time. It's just like, no, we should do something really noisy and ambient. Oh no, we should do a really pop record. <laughs> so we were and that that's one of the beautiful things about you guys' music is there's so much versatility within your range that you can still stay true to yourselves and have a completely different feel yeah and um i think when whenever we have completed or nearly completed songs there's enough process of like fluffing things in production to make them sound like they're in the same universe you know, um, so that always helps because really our our musical stylings and our what we're feeling at the time is widely varying. So it's you never know what we're gonna come out with. Um, but we have we have some some pretty solid uh, direction, I would say, uh, for a new LP. Um, or maybe we'll do an EP. I don't know. Maybe who who knows really. But <laughs> but as far as new material, it's coming. And uh, I think once we chill out on shows, like I mean, when I say, we say the tour just ended, but like I literally just got an offer for a show in November, a show today that's next week, and we have a show next week in Minneapolis. <laughs> and so it's 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 like a rocky stop. And so, but once we get some, some real clear time off, like it's usually in the winter, which is, oh man, it's a rough time to write. Um, but sometimes a good time to write because you don't want to go outside. So you like to have, you like to set down and set out, Hey, we're going to, we're going to take a break from live shows and we're going to invest our time into this album. No, not really. I mean, some if we get offers good enough, we'll like break out of the studio and and go play a show. But most of the time, one-offs are uh, a bit more difficult for us because you know we live where we live now, 
And um, in Chicago, when we were living there, it would have been a lot easier. But, you know, sometimes we're just getting offers in in other states far away, in other countries. Or it's just like, mm, yeah, this just doesn't make sense for us. So we're not going to do it. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of bands uh, don't uh, break away from studio time. And um, they just stick to it. But... Um, Process-wise, do you find it challenging to break away and to go and do a live show, or do you find it as a good break to be able to come back fresh to the studio? Um, I would say my personal process in the studio is so, um, like, one foot in, one foot out, you know? Like, I'm just working on stuff when I feel like it, and... Um, but I would say the last record, um, there was a point where I was just going in every single day and working all day on stuff. That was like the first time I've ever done that. I don't know if I'll do it again just because of the impact that has mentally. Also, it was in the middle of winter and I was just kind of had like a uh, like a shining moment where I'm just like walking around the studio. like. <sighs> <laughs> um, no, but um, I think just the, the the general nature of how I do things personally, how I'm cool with working. It's just I'll work on it when I feel like it, when I get in, when I get uh, inspired. So it it's not it's not that difficult for me. But um, well, I I, I kind of wondered about that because of how important the live shows are to you and Hannah musically that if coming off of a live show and that energy would help you and, and potentially inspire you going back into the studio if, if you're doing it in the middle of well, usually after studio we, sessions. Usually after we play a show, we're just like, want to go to bed forever like and just not do anything. D also depending on how the show goes. but uh, Or we just like, we're like, dang, that was like really, really good. We should, we should just get back on the road. <laughs> you know, so it could be a bit disruptive. Um, but I... I mean, probably the most healthy thing to do would be just commit to studio time, but whether we will or won't, who knows? So I wonder, I wonder how many people really understand how grueling touring can be as far as it's not just you guys up there playing songs. Mm. Like whenever you're performing, you're really performing and performing in it. Mm -hmm. and putting everything that you have into it. And what, ki what kind of a emotional toll does that take from an exhaustion standpoint? A really, really big one. <laughs> um, so not only is it about getting on stage every night and really being in it and delivering a consistently good and... Uh, meaningful performance every night there's also all the preparation um usually it involves because we're not big enough to a point where we can we have an entire crew that put the show together for us and we just walk on stage one day hopefully that would be the dream um but we're doing everything on our own we we the, the the day is waking up in a hotel early that we booked ourselves and we checked into ourselves and we loaded all of our gear into ourselves and we load our gear again. We do all the loading and heavy lifting, transporting, getting in a van, driving ourselves to shows every single day, um, showing up, loading our stuff up, setting up our entire show and then doing the performance packing it up at the end of the night and just doing it all over again, night after night and basically no days off. Any days off that we had are usually travel days, which are equally as grueling. Um, so that all plays into the emotional toll because it's so much hard work and sometimes we have shows that just are terrible and we feel really bad about them. Um, and then you start to get in your head and question whether or not this is like all worth it. And luckily we have mostly good shows. And so that there's a natural repair mechanism there. And so, but it, it's, it's, it's a, it is a, 
an absolute roller coaster. And so by the end of it, you're just like, what do I do? You know, it's, it's not even just like you've been used to something, but you're in a mental state. Um, and a lot of times we just don't know what to do with ourselves when we're back. We're just like, just kind of, kind of sit there. We're like, what, what just happened? <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, I think as time goes, we'll hopefully have more weights lifted off, off of us, less responsibility. But um, also, I'm such less a... Less day-to-day task responsibility. Yeah, but yeah. also, you know, I'm such a control freak. You know, I like to know <laughs> everything that's going on and kind of, like, be in charge of everything. I'm like Dio, like, just kind of just, like, you know where every light is and you know, like, what how everything works. And it's just like, well, let me do it, you know? Um, so... And that's something that you mentioned earlier is that... So you get, you're not just taking a guitar and an amp and a... And a and a drum pad mm-hmm. and a synth in there. You you mentioned your lighting gear and that that Hannah's firing off the lighting for a show as well. Mm-hmm. You're traveling with your own full light kit mm-hmm. for meant for club shows. Yeah, and and it's good because like a lot of the times when we play bigger venues, they still work well in tandem with like a huge system, or you know depending on where we put them. The first part of the tour, we had uh, bar lights that were up on us. And so, like, you would just see our faces, like, in a wash or, like, strobes. But then <laughs> it was really difficult to play. So we just put it behind us. So we have, like, this... We've always uh, had this uh, silhouette image where we've had for a long time where we would have lights behind us and you kind of just see our silhouette and little to no light on us, but you kind of just see us there. And so we brought that back um, and... Um, that was really, that worked really well. And, uh, um, but yeah, we, 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 we bring our own show and, um, and it's, it, uh, it honestly helps with consistency every night. And so we can kind of feel like we're doing the same show and, uh, you know, even times like I'll work off lighting cues, you know, like I'll move a certain way and, uh, I'll know that when a lighting cue comes on, it's like, uh, like a movement with some sort of intention, you know? Um, so it helps us deliver consistency too. But, um, <laughs> you, you know, you mentioned bringing in an amp and, uh, where yeah. So doing this stuff night after night where I was like, I got rid of my amp. I want to make this as easy as possible. Um, same with the lights. We were carrying on like heavy lighting rigs and putting them on tripods and I'm like, no, let's just get some, a couple light, light, <laughs> bar lights and I can carry them in a bag and uh yeah it's it's kind of just streamlining simplicity is what our mo is I would say but at the same time creating a a fully consistent executed show for every time yeah we definitely want to deliver that same level of production but um but in a more efficient way for yourselves precisely and you're walking in the majority of these venues have are providing you with a PA that you plug into yeah, and, have, uh, uh, and, yeah. and they have somebody to mix the show. Yeah. But even that's something that uh, we've, uh, we've become more self-contained with is um, before this tour, this most recent tour, um, you know, we were coming in with our gear and just sending inputs to engineers. But, you know, a lot of the times we just weren't really trusting that the mix was exactly what we wanted. And, um, playing off of uh, wedges night after night and having to go through sound check. That is so grueling too. And just making sure your, your, your wedge mix is right. Or if someone else is in charge of your in-ears, it just, it changes every time. So what we ended up doing was we got a, like a rack mount mixer and um, we, all of our, like for every one of our songs, we have a snapshot and uh, we just go song by song and every song has its own specific ear mix. Some of the instruments are muted. It's just all there. And um, really, we just tell the engineer, like, yeah, you know, put a low shelf, uh, some cuts. You know, you can do that. You know, this is, but it's pretty much all there, and you can pretty much do it flat. Um, so, are you just sending them a couple of outs now? We just send them a left and right. Okay. Yep. Well, that makes their job a lot easier. Yeah, and and I, we were kind of skeptical of how people would react at first we're like no like we're gonna be sending them everything and uh some people are gonna get really freaked out by that <laughs> almost every engineer they're like really you're just you're, you're just sending me to it 
you speaking it's my language. It's an easy night. Thank you yeah. so much. I don't have to, I don't, I don't, you don't have to, I don't have to mix your wedges. The monitor guy doesn't have to. Amazing. Let's roll. Well, and it's, <laughs> but it creates consistency for you because you know yeah. that your levels are all going to be where they're supposed to be. Yeah. Um, as opposed to a new engineer every night that has never heard your band before. Right. Or doesn't know your music well enough for to know what should be at what levels. And so you guys are, once again, creating that consistent show yeah for your live shows every time yeah um so that's that's been pleasant uh, people love like in-house engineers love it when we tell them <laughs> what we're working with um i can't wait to see you guys live um i've seen live recordings and i've seen your live streams and i've seen i've never seen an actual live show and i hope to get there soon maybe here one day one day when's tiffany coming back that's a good question <laughs> Um, but I look forward to that. Thank you for coming and spending some time with us today. Um, and I look forward to hearing your next album and, and seeing the direction you guys go on that one. Yeah, it's great to be here. And yeah, thanks for having me and good to talk to you as always. All right. Thank you, Vincent. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for State of the Arts Southern Illinois, a podcast by the Marion Cultural and Civic Center featuring local artists, artisans, musicians, arts organizations, and arts events in Southern Illinois, as well as touring artists coming to the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Special thanks to Vincent Secretario for his time speaking with us today, and a special thank you to Vincent and Wingtips for providing this episode's soundtrack. Join us every Thursday morning for a new episode on Facebook, YouTube, or whatever audio podcast service you prefer. And now for Run for Shelter, by wingtips in its entirety.